The $100 million fight for crypto in Washington, D.C. That's what Ryan Selkis, our next guest, feels like we need in order to take this battle to D.C. and to win. Some questions we had for him in this episode. Can we actually raise $100 million to fight for crypto in D.C.? What would that even look like? What would we spend this on? Is the U.S. really the place we should fight? I thought crypto was international. Why do we need money in politics to fight this fight anyway? We talk about the window of opportunity to actually get this right. Ryan Selkis thinks we have a very narrow window in which to deploy these funds or else we lose the opportunity. And then we get to Ryan's proposal for a new organization that he is creating to help win this fight in D.C. David, this is the year of regulatory. It's 2023. I feel like that's been a major theme for the year, and that's why this episode is important. Yeah, it's been the year of bad regulatory guidance, bad regulatory oversight. And Ryan Selkis wants to make it the year of good regulatory oversight with what he is proposing here with the Digital Freedom Alliance. But before we get into that conversation with Ryan, I want to talk to you about Asymmetrics Protocol with our friends and sponsors at Asymmetrics. If you are familiar with Pool Together, it's quite like that, except with ETH staking. So what does Asymmetrics do? Is that just 4.5 to 5% ETH staking yield, just too boring? How does anywhere between 0 and 999% sound? Because that is what you can get with Asymmetrics. You put your Ether into Asymmetrics, it stakes it into Lido with staked ETH, and then it distributes the yield, not to you, but to just one lucky winner, which could be you, but it probably won't, but it might. And if it is you, you will get a lot of ETH. It's like 6 ETH right now. 6 ETH, yeah. To the lucky exactly. winner. And so if you want to just really play with the size of your winnings, again, either 0 or quite a lot, uh, <laughs> this is the place for you. This is called a prize linked savings account. So it's like a savings account, except instead of slow and steady yield, every once in a while you get a price. Uh, so there is a link in the show notes to get started with asymmetrics. Uh, it's bankless.cc slash asymmetrics. And, or you can follow them at Twitter at asymmetrics underscore ETH. David, $100 million is pretty ambitious here, but Ryan makes a great case for why we need that much. What do you think of his plan? I think bankless listeners who are going into this episode, I think the imagination that they could strike is like, hey, you know how good SBF was at playing the DC game? He was very good at it. He was a very, very effective. Sadly, he was a fraud. What if SBF was playing the game actually in line with crypto's interests? That is the question that Ryan is presenting to the industry saying, hey, we need to do the thing that SBF was doing, but for the good guys, for us, for our own interests. <laughs> it's the correct game to play. And it's that we have a very small window of opportunity to play it. And we need to be effective because if we lose the game, unwinding that game, this game of playing the political fight in DC, it's a one to two year long game. If we lose that game, it is 10 years of repair and going backwards in order to get back to where this industry needs to be. So Ryan makes a very strong case that now is the time and DC is the place. And so I think that's kind of the imagination that I'll leave with listeners is like, man, what if SBF was a good guy in DC and he actually had fought for our interests? How nice would that have been? Ryan's proposing that we do that, sadly, a, a year or so late. But regardless, it's the right place to be. I think he makes a great case for that. And if you think that doing nothing is a viable strategy, wow. I think you should listen to Ryan's case for why it's not a viable strategy, how doing nothing leads to more SBFs actually stepping in to DC and representing us mm -hmm. in ways that we might not want to be represented. So we get into all of that today, a very important episode in 2023 and the current climate that we're in for sure. Guys, we're going to get right to the episode with Ryan Selkis. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this possible, including Kraken, our number one recommended crypto exchange. 
Kraken has been a leader in the crypto industry for the last 12 years. Dedicated to accelerating the global adoption of crypto, Kraken puts an emphasis on security, transparency, and client support, which is why over 9 million clients have come to love Kraken's products. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, the Kraken UX is simple, intuitive, and frictionless, making the Kraken app a great place for all to get involved and learn about crypto. For those with experience, the redesigned Kraken Pro app and web experience is completely customizable to your trading needs, integrating key trading features into one seamless interface. Kraken has a 24-7, 365 client support team that is globally recognized. Kraken support is available wherever, whenever you need them, by phone, chat, or email. And for all of you NFTers out there, the brand new Kraken NFT beta platform gives you the best NFT trading experience possible. Rarity rankings, no gas fees, and the ability to buy an NFT straight with cash. Does your crypto exchange prioritize its customers the way that Kraken does? And if not, sign up with Kraken at kraken.com. Introducing ETHX from Stater. ETHX is a liquid staking token designed to maximize rewards all while securing Ethereum. With Stater, you can run an Ethereum node with just 4 ETH, which is 85% lower capital and 35% higher rewards versus solo staking. Stater has a multi-pool architecture with permissionless and permission node operators to enable decentralization and scalability. Stater has extensive experience in building liquid staking protocols on six proof-of-stake blockchains and is trusted by over 70,000 stakers. Stater has partnered with over over 40 leading protocols to bring DeFi utility to their liquid staking tokens. Stater is actively building integrations across the Ethereum ecosystem to bring the same great DeFi utility to the EtherX token. With a million dollars of SD token rewards in DeFi, force ETHX users. All of Stater's smart contracts are audited by at least two independent cybersecurity auditors and have multi-million dollar bug bounties currently live. So go to staterlabs.com ETH to sign up and get access to the Stater staking protocol. Hiring people worldwide paying them in crypto, providing them access to benefits. It all is so complex, but it doesn't have to be. Complying with labor laws, payroll rules, tax obligations, and crypto regulations in every country that you employ someone is difficult, time-consuming, manual, and costly, and it's drawing more and more attention from regulators and governments. But there is good news. Toku is here. Toku is the first employment and compensation platform for the crypto industry that makes this easy. Toku helps you hire employees or contractors and pay them in fiat or crypto crypto legally, compliantly, and with all the taxes handled in over a hundred different jurisdictions. So whether you're an early stage company with just a team of two, or you're an enterprise with 200, Toku has a solution that meets your needs. Toku is already working with the leading companies in the space, Protocol Labs, Hedera, Gitcoin, and many more. So transform your employment and token payroll operations with Toku. You can reach out to Toku at toku.com bankless, or click the link in the show notes. Bankless Nation, I would love to introduce you to Ryan Selkis, the founder and CEO of Masari, also an outspoken political advocate for the crypto industry, which is in short supply these days. And he is here to propose something new for crypto's fight in Washington. Ryan, welcome back to Bankless. Always good to be here, guys. Hope you're holding up well. Ryan, are you picking a fight for us? A little bit. And you know me, I feel like I mix it up with different folks on different occasions throughout the years. This is year 10 for me within crypto. <laughs> And I would like to think that at this point, my staying power and the fact that I'm still around and still have a few friends in the industry means that I've been picking smart fights over the years. And I think that this is just the most recent smart fight that is worth fighting down in DC. And, and a lot of it is damage control and just resetting the narrative post FTX collapse in November. I think we took a huge hit. I think DC moves slower and public sentiment moves slower than crypto does. So 
as focused as people are within the industry on moving forward, on building our way out of this and getting to the next milestones and, and kind of next killer apps and laying the foundation for you know all the infrastructure improvements that have come out between you know e-scaling and, and all the rollups chains that have launched, we are still feeling the after effects of FTX from a public policy standpoint. And we probably will be for some time. So there's a couple of ways out of that. And I think there is a general lack of understanding within the crypto community as to how public policy works and in particular, like how DC works. And what I hope to do you know, today is basically talk about some of those misconceptions and potentially some of the solutions that I do think are going to require pretty proactive engagement and not just taking a step back and saying, you know, oh, it's fine. The rest of the world will move on and the U.S. will be left behind. Or, you know, we're just going to focus on the tech and we don't really need to engage with policymakers. I think both of those are incorrect. And I think you've had a couple of guests on from the regulatory sphere that have, have said as much. But even from a crypto native standpoint, I would try to make that argument and, and maybe parse fact from fiction in terms of what's going on and what's going to get us to the other side of this bear market. Well, let's start with the first fact from fiction question, right? I think you've basically said, and you know, this may be a direct quote, Ryan, Washington wants to kill crypto. Do you think that's hyperbole or do you think that's, that's really the case? Like, is something different about 2023 where Washington has taken this, I'm not just going to stifle crypto, we actively want to kill it? Of course, Washington is a complex beast, so you can't talk about every faction wanting to kill crypto. Maybe you're just referring to a specific contingent, but tell us about that. Does Washington want to kill crypto? I don't think everybody in the crypto industry feels that way. Well, if you're talking about Bitcoin and you're talking about the government's version of crypto, then I think there's probably some shades of gray, right? The government doesn't necessarily want to, or they won't at least overtly say that they want to kill those upstarts. Uh, or, or those more established projects, they might be focusing on, okay, how do we make sure that we prevent another situation like FTX? How do we ensure we prevent another situation like Terra? But for all intents and purposes, the folks that matter in DC right now are in the Biden administration of the financial regulators, right? We've seen what's happened in the past few months with choke point 2.0 and the debanking issues that many companies have had in the industry. We've seen this personally, you know, at the Masari level and, and this new entity, Digital Freedom Alliance, that we're talking to banking partners. And even for pretty plain vanilla organizations that are crypto adjacent, that don't actually process transactions, that don't actually touch native assets, it's still a challenge to get through the compliance process you know, for banking. On the SEC side, I think that, that ground's been well-trotted. What is a security versus a commodity versus a currency? You know, Chair Gensler has his knives out for the industry, and that's going to impact basically every asset not named Bitcoin. And he, he's even extended, in fact, and, and the SEC has extended to claiming that stable coins are somehow part of their purview. And then I think when you talk about the other miscellaneous regulators, you know, whether you're talking about the Fed and Treasury, they'll talk about financial stability, they'll talk about national security. We don't have a lot of friends within the Biden administration right now. That's just the ground reality. To your point, Washington is not a monolith, right? There are folks on both sides of the aisle. There are folks in different generations, not just in terms of age, but in terms of experience and kind of like old school, new school, where, where do they come from politically, that are very mixed on crypto. And it is fairly split, or at least it seems like it's fairly split between what I'd call the ones and the fives, right? The ones being the Elizabeth Warrens of the world, the Brad Shermans of the world that just want to outright kill this and recruit their anti-crypto army. Then there's the fives. Maybe that's the, you know, the Tom Emmers, the Rokanas, the folks that are really good and tempered in terms of thinking about how to regulate crypto. 
But the reality is that the vast majority, you know, 80 plus percent of representatives in Congress are somewhere between two, three, and four. And most of the time they're at a three because they just don't care and they kind of think that crypto is already dead. So I think, I mean, you guys have done a couple episodes on X risk with, with AGI, right? Like the X risk with AGI is not that these like AGIs are evil and they, they want to squash everything. It's that they just don't care. Like, you know, we're, we're like ants. Um, and there's like a, there's a little bit of that that you can analogize to in DC, which is they see the five bullets of like what has happened last year. They think this is bullshit. We have to fix this. And they don't really take the time necessarily to get into the minutia and the details, many of them. And so what may happen if we are not coordinated and highly engaged in DC the next 12 to 18 months is they're just going to steamroll over some of that nuance and ultimately create structures that are going to be untenable for the industry in the US for years to come. And I think we do have a very short window. I think the 2024 election is very important. And I think the work that we do in kind of resetting the narrative and reestablishing trust, and in some cases, self-regulating, or at least trying to act according to the spirit of existing consumer protection laws, is really going to dictate what type of long-term outcomes we have in the US. We can have a global conversation that's adjacent to that, but I think about the US as in the medium term, a 2X delta in crypto success. You know, we have the first, second, fourth, fifth, tenth amendment, you know, on our side. We have a pretty libertarian populace. We've got the largest tech economy in the world. We've got the largest financial markets in the world. We've got the reserve currency. You know, if the US is hostile to crypto versus friendly or, or at least common sense in its approach to crypto, you're talking about a 2x in market size, one way or the other. So I think the risk that Washington kills crypto is not necessarily that it comes down top down evilly and says, you know, we're, I think that might be a little bit of tinfoil hat territory. But I think the reality is more likely that they just see the risks here, a lot of other big problems that we need to focus on, we're going to steamroll over it. And then in the process, we as an industry will have lost a pretty critical foothold that I think people underestimate in terms of you know, the U.S.'s importance in the crypto economy in the medium term and, and basically what a hostile U.S. would do in having the potential for the market in the next five years if, if things go the wrong way. I just want to capture that last point because this isn't just about the United States. I mean, some people might be listening to this and, and being like, Ryan, crypto, like, get out of your American bubble, man. Like crypto is a global movement, okay? Yeah, America has the problems right now, but America is not the rest of the world. But I think you just made the case that the U.S. actually is the hill to die on, <laughs> at least for crypto. Can you get into that a little bit more? Can you kind of reinforce that case? Why does what happens in the United States matter globally? Doesn't America just get left behind and crypto innovation moves elsewhere and so we soldier on? Why take this fight to Washington so hard? I mean, I think you have to just be realistic about where funding comes from, around where demand has come from historically, and where a good chunk of development is right now. And then also which nations have the rule of law and kind of the existing you know, uh, societal norms that, that are going to foster innovation in an area like crypto. And the easiest way to do that is to look just very simply, China, US, Europe, rest of world, right? Do you want to be building decentralized technologies behind the great firewall of China? And do you think that that ultimately is going to be a healthy market for technologies that decentralize power, that decentralize authority, and that ultimately empower individuals 
to make private transactions or own their own data or you know otherwise kind of live as self-sovereigns. That's a pretty easy yes or no question. I'll leave that to the listener to decide, but you know, I think that it's somewhat straightforward. Another quarter of the world you can break down as European. And I think Europe is actually an area that we've made some progress from a regulatory standpoint. I'm not totally convinced that we're going to love all the solutions that come out of Europe. If you think about what's happening with Mika right now, there are restrictions on, you know, how much you can have in self-custody accounts. There are going to be disclosure requirements. There are already tremendous speech restrictions in the EU, whether you're talking about, you know, just the drama the last week with Twitter and the disinformation uh, issues that they have, the Ministry of Truth, you know, as it were in, in the EU. If you're thinking about the health of the euro and, and just like the governance issues that, that you have in the European Union, I don't think you want to put all of your eggs in that basket. And so then you're basically left with half of the global economy, you know, 25% of it being the US, 25% rest of the world. We should focus on, I think, Europe and the US. I'm an American, you guys are American. So I kind of feel like the EU is run by technocrats and Mika is already fairly far along. So we're just going to have to adapt to that, you know, kind of post Mika world in the crypto community. The other half of the world and the one quarter and one jurisdiction that we can actually control and make an impact is going to be the US. And given the US's outsized dominance in financial services and technology, the rest of the world will more likely than not follow some of the US regulatory model and the EU regulatory model than they will kind of bootstrap their own. And if they do bootstrap their own, is it going to be adopted by similar countries or is it more likely that them going their own way, like El Salvador is a good example, like are they going to create risk for themselves with the IMF, with the other kind of global power structures that just dwarf them in size? And I think that's a pretty hairy question that some emerging economies are, are going to have to wrap their heads around is, you know, do we want to gravitate towards the US? Do we want to gravitate towards the EU? Do we want to gravitate towards, you know, China? Like whose meta rules are we ultimately going to think about playing by when it comes to international finance and tech? And I think it will be the exception, not the rule that smaller countries will go their own way. What you'll instead be left with is, you know, some version of the US crypto rules or some version of the EU crypto rules or the Chinese crypto rules will ultimately be what are enacted by and large and that people follow internationally. So what we need to do is we need to make sure that the US is the most laissez-faire of those major three markets so that it can be, I think, a gravity well or you know, a magnet for some of these other developing economies to adopt their models and ensure that we actually have the ability to build self-custody and advance some of these kind of new applications that we've been working on. I also want to just grab one other point. It also seems like there might be just a small window of opportunity in which to do this and get it done. Because once legislation is in place, it's very difficult to kind of roll back. And we're seeing Mika's in place. China already has its posture on crypto, which has basically been previously to ban it unless they reverse course. And now there's the U.S., which is still unwritten. The future is still unwritten here. But you can't imagine it going five years from now and still, like, the U.S. hasn't weighed in on this crypto thing, mm. right? Like, they're going to have to do something within the next five years. So that feels like there is a maybe shrinking window of opportunity to get something done and to do it well in the U.S. Would you agree with that? I think it's a very short window of opportunity. Sentiment is temporary, law is permanent. Right? It is very difficult to get old laws off the books. It's difficult to pass legislation. It's arguably even more difficult to repeal or alter existing laws. 
And you just think about how many years we've been talking about, hey, we need common sense frameworks in the US for crypto. The asset class is swollen to you know, over a trillion dollars in size. You have hundreds, you know, over a hundred billion dollars of euro dollars that are digitized and traded on chain. And there's no federal legislation or really anything that's close to federal legislation right now on crypto. That is that is going to come to a head at some point. And it's either going to come to a head because the executive branch will seize control and basically do everything in its power to stamp out anything that isn't overtly regulated and doesn't fit within existing, you know, regulatory norms and, and which is the policy. default if That's legislation default doesn't happen. Yep. And then there's bad legislation that would potentially cripple a lot of the industry. So we really need to thread the needle here in terms of getting good kind of narrow legislation that can eke out iterative progress. A couple of months ago, I, I'd written a letter to a number of senators and congressmen just kind of laying out, you know, fact versus fiction. And also, you know, what do we need to see in terms of a public policy framework that will help advance the industry and America's interest in being a dominant player within the crypto market for years to come? And I think most others, it kind of breaks down into three sub pieces of legislation. And one of the problems is everybody's trying to have this, you know, universal theory of everything for crypto. And it's an emerging market that's just not going to happen right now. If instead we broke it into three pieces, perhaps stable coins, market structure, which would basically be how do you handle exchanges and custodians, and then how do you handle the assets, right? So three different pieces. I think we could thread the needle and we could have really positive public policy frameworks in the US that foster innovation, that extend the dollar's dominance because you continue to ensure that the US dollar and, and US dollar denominated stable coins are the reserve currency for crypto. And you make sure that you safeguard investors and avoid blowups akin to FTX and many of the other issues that we saw largely internationally, right? So I think the highest probability legislation that, that could be passed in the next couple of years would probably be around how do you regulate stable coins and how do you regulate exchanges, custodians, and the like. And by the way, this is something that you know with the uh, DCCPA, the Stabenow Bozeman bill last year, there was a lot of noise around this. You had the famous debate between you know Eric and Sam. That bill. I don't think people appreciate like you're always like a few sentences between like a really shitty piece of legislation and like something that can actually be positive and workable. And the issue with the DCCPA last year was particularly with the reaction from the crypto community, people were looking at a draft piece of legislation that was still getting the fine tooth comb and, and people were, were arguing about the words and trying to make sure that they were technically accurate, that the spirit of what the, the legislators were, were trying to do was consistent with the actual letter of the law that was written and basically changed the several sentences that would make a good market structure bill, a good stable coin, you know, kind of legislation would make it work without crippling DeFi or pushing every single crypto asset through the SEC or something similar. And we didn't get there for numerous reasons, not the least of which was, you know, the events of November and, and FTX's collapse, I think, through cold water on any forward progress that we had there. But I do think that there were core pieces of that legislation. There are core pieces of, of a couple of other pieces of legislation that have been sponsored by Tom Emmer and Chair McHenry and Maxine Waters. I think I have good stablecoin legislation. These things aren't that far away, but some of the splits that we see, it takes time, energy, and attention to actually close those gaps. And that's what I think is working against us right now is, you know, generally speaking, I think the Democrats are okay with the status quo because they feel like Gary Gensler and the financial regulators are clamping down on the industry and making sure that it can no longer do any harm. But 
some of the more forward-thinking legislators are trying to say, we would like to actually come to a compromise here. We'd like to set some clear guidelines. And we would also like to ensure that we're not just delegating public policy that's going to have a long-term economic impact to one man that's temporarily heading a regulatory agency and grabbing as much power as he possibly can. So, you know, to come full circle, one of the reasons that I'm spending more time, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this yeah, maybe as a segue, but one of the reasons I'm spending more time kind of formally on public policy is how do we call attention to some of this overreach in a constructive way? And then how do we, you know, advance our own narrative? So it's not just the crypto community, you know, whining about getting regulated after all of the sins of 2022. That's just not going to play in DC. It's not going to play in Europe. It's not going to play anywhere. I think everybody recognizes that a redux of 2022 in a future market cycle is not a scenario that global policymakers are you know, going to allow. And they will deputize anyone that they believe is going to prevent it. And right now, that's Chair Gensler, that's Chair you know, Gruenberg from the FDIC to a certain extent through Choke Point and a couple of the other regulators. So our only hope right now actually make some forward progress between now and the 2024 election is a bipartisan stable coin or market structure bill that solves some of these jurisdictional issues or some changes and you know, in many cases, generation change in DC in the next um, 2024 election. So it's a long time to wait by crypto standards to feel like we're in a holding pattern. So I used to take consolation in the idea that it's not it's impossible to ban crypto. You only ban your citizens from accessing crypto. And if America was going to just shoot itself in the foot and ban crypto, then so be it. But I now take the perspective that America banning crypto is the fight. Because if America leads by example and does great legislation and great leadership, and we as the crypto industry get to advocate for ourselves inside of Capitol Hill inside of Washington, then the downstream net effects of that are significant. If we win this fight, we win 10, 15, 20 other fights across the globe. And so I think what you're saying, Ryan, is that it behooves the crypto industry to make the full court press here and now inside of Washington. And I think what you're also saying is like, not only is the battleground, the correct battleground to fight America, but also the time is now. This is not something that we can choose to wait on. The vultures are circling. Decisions are going to be made in the next two years around those three things that you outlined, market structure, stable coins, and the nature of assets. And so what you're saying is like, this is the moment for the crypto industry to make a full court press mm -hmm. because like you said, laws tend to go one way. They get approved and then they don't get pulled back. And so my question to you is like, well, okay, great. I think we, at least part of the crypto industry would accept this. And that's why we have things like Coin Center and Blockchain Association and all the other crypto advocacy groups in Capitol Hill. So what are you proposing that's different? What are you coming to the table with that is unique from all the other efforts that we've already had in this crypto industry? So great question. So I think a lot of these other organizations are doing great work and they will be the first ones to say where there are gaps in the market today. So taking a step back and then I'll drill down into what we're doing with Digital Freedom Alliance, this new 501c4 that we just started. In order to win over the next 18 months, hold the line, advance some positive narratives of the industry, potentially advance some positive legislation and continue to elect more pro-crypto members of Congress. What we're going to need is around $100 million of, of total spent, right, for that campaign. $100 million. Yeah. And I think we're probably about a third of the way funded to that. No. Well, I mean, if you think about the annual budgets of not the organization I'm talking about, I'm talking oh. about the, the, the top down, right? Okay. The, the, the top down approach, right? 
So if you think about the operating budgets for Coin Center, for the Crypto Council for Innovation, for Blockchain Association, if you think about the in-house policy spend and lobbying that's you know, going on at some of the corporates, and you just kind of tally all of that effort, it's a, a probably around you know, 30 to $40 million. And last year, you know, that's not that big a difference year over year if you take out FTX, right? So kind of the status quo is intact. So just to drive that point home, the crypto industry spends about 30 to $40 million in advocacy in Capitol Hill is what you're saying collectively. I would say last, you know, post-infrastructure bill, I think, yeah, we got up to that level. So last year, I'd say that's about the right number. I think this year is probably similar. And the way that that breaks down, ideally that 100 million, you have the status quo with the trade associations and the, and the advocacy groups that are just doing like the shoe leather lobbying, right? They're meeting with members, they're trying to educate members about what is DeFi, what is self-custody, how does the tech work, why are these things important, how does this already fit in some cases in, into the current you know public policy framework and regulatory framework, and it really historically has been, I'd say, ninety plus percent education and, and advocacy, right? And I think that's really important because you're talking about a novel tech and you're talking about, you know, why should you care about this? Why is it important for American competitiveness? Why is this good for consumers? And basically, you know, painting the picture of, okay, what does the world look like in five, 10 years if we can allow these technologies to thrive, but also safeguard consumers and individuals? And what does it look like if we just push everything offshore, which is kind of the current direction? So that's basically like education advocacy and kind of tech 101. And when you say education advocacy, you're talking about education to political leaders, to regulators. Yes. This is lawmakers. not like educate to lawmakers specifically. Exactly. To, okay. to lawmakers, to folks in Washington, D.C. Another problem that has emerged that sometimes you know, part of that bucket of what the trade associations or groups like Queen Center will do is litigation finance. And this is essentially just like holding the line and challenging some of the overreach that we've seen from the financial regulators, right? You can probably put another 10 to $15 million in that bucket, but some of the cases like Ripple's own case are orders of magnitude more expensive than that. But there's probably about, you know, half dozen to a dozen cases, you know, all of which are going to cost, you know, probably on average about a million dollars because they're smaller scale, just to actually hold the line and check the overreach of, of some of these regulators and, you know, basically call balls and strikes or, or try to avoid negative precedents just because people aren't paying attention, right? So a good example would be the Wahi case with Coinbase and all the briefs that you saw from friendly entities and from some of the pro bono work that came in from different groups to actually challenge some of the claims that the regulators were making in that case so that it didn't create poor precedent and push us further in the direction of, okay, this is tech that should you know be treated as you know securities issuance technology and, and everything should kind of fall in the SEC's bucket. Right. This is just like the trench warfare right. of court battles. The tornado cash OFAC yeah, right. court cases come to mind as well. Exactly. So you know I'd say collectively this is probably like half the battle. The other half is campaign finance, which I'll talk about in a minute. But of that, you call it 50 million, there is I think one really important gap in the market, which is in messaging, message testing, paid advertisements, you know, just general campaigning for crypto and changing our negatives from like nine to one in the mainstream media or in DC, maybe to three to one or two to one, right? So just getting more of the pro crypto voices out there, muting some of the most outrageous, you know, FUD inducing claims that we see on a day-to-day -day basis about how, you know, crypto is used for all these illicit activities or, you know, people have only lost their shirts with this tech. It's not really good for anything. It hasn't really hit, you know, any you know mainstream scale. We need to counter some of those narratives and have actually 
like you know, polling data and message testing that is going to help advance our narrative with those right audiences and then just saturate them with it. So like research-driven pro-crypto messaging that we first research and then broadcast to the right people. Exactly. And it's, you know, talking points for kind of mainstream media surrogates. It's actually just understanding like what language works with policymakers, whether they're a one or a four, whether they're a Democrat or Republican, and making sure that we stick to some type of campaign message, right? You always hear political campaigns talk about staying on message. An advocacy organization like Digital Freedom Alliance, which is, this is all we're going to be doing, is messaging, coordination, grassroots engagement, and helping tell the story of crypto and then saturate DC with that story. Everything that we're doing right now has to be about staying on message as if you think about crypto as like the candidate, right? The crypto campaign needs to stay on message and we need to talk about American competitiveness. We need to talk about tech innovation and what that has done for our economy You know, long-term. We need to talk about the threats to the dollar and to our international dominance of financial services if we push this technology offshore. And you know, kind of three to five kind of bulleted messages that are going to resonate on both sides of the aisle. And we're actually going to be able to make a positive impact. And we also need to turn this into a campaign issue. So out of the messaging focused advocacy groups, I'd say we're lacking that right now in terms of like a single group that's going to coordinate, you know, shouting into the megaphone and really kind of nailing messages that work. Coin Center does a great job of this with a very narrow set of issues. So privacy, software developer rights, the case for Bitcoin, and you know, generally are following a pretty disciplined approach towards protecting constitutional rights of crypto users in the US. I think about Coin Center almost like the Night's Watch, right? To use the Game of Thrones comparison, right? They're at the wall defending some of the big constitutional issues where any encroachment of, over that line is breaking some law or some norm. And they're the first line of defense in terms of calling that out and actually actively fighting that in the courts. We don't really have an organization right now that's focused on like the fight for King's Landing, which is really like the muck of DC and the political campaigning that I think is required to make anti-crypto policy politically damaging for our biggest opponents or their allies, and to make pro-crypto advocacy something that is going to be rewarded at the ballot box, right? So there's on one side of the wall, a messaging campaign that goes around that. And then on the other side, we're talking about actual hard money that's going to go into electing pro-crypto politicians. So out of that $100 million general campaign that we're talking about, about $50 million is going to messaging, advocacy, lobbying, litigation, finance, where you're fighting and you're making the case for crypto with the existing incumbents. The other half has to do with electoral politics, right? So how do we advance more pro-crypto candidates through primaries? How do we elect more pro-crypto Dems, more pro-crypto Republicans in both chambers of Congress? And then ultimately, how do you make the crypto voting block very loud so that it will be perceived as politically damaging to be on the wrong side of this issue if you're Elizabeth Warren or one of her close allies? That's where I think super PACs and PAC funding comes in, which is the direct contributions that are being made to campaigns or the indirect contributions that are going to different groups that are generally aligned for or against a political candidate in a race. And that ultimately, you know, kind of is responsible for the TV ads, the print ads, and, you know, every dollar that's going into 
fighting in the trenches in some of these swing states or some of these you know key districts or key races that you know are going to be within you know five points come November of 2024. Arbitrum One is pioneering the world of secure Ethereum scalability and is continuing to accelerate the Web3 landscape. Hundreds of projects have already deployed on Arbitrum One, producing flourishing DeFi and NFT ecosystems. With the recent addition of Arbitrum Nova, gaming and social dApps like Reddit are also now calling Arbitrum home. Both Arbitrum One and Nova leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum and provide a builder experience that's intuitive, familiar, and fully EVM compatible. On Arbitrum, both builders and users will experience faster transaction speeds with significantly lower gas fees. With Arbitrum's recent migration to Arbitrum Nitro, it's also now 10 times faster than before. Visit Arbitrum.io where you can join the community, dive into the developer docs, bridge your assets, and start building your first dApp. With Arbitrum, experience Web3 development the way it was meant to be. Secure, fast, cheap, and friction-free. Learning about crypto is hard. Until now. Introducing MetaMask Learn, an open educational platform about crypto, Web3, self-custody, wallet management, and all the other topics needed to onboard people into this crazy world of crypto. MetaMask Learn is an interactive platform with each lesson offering a simulation for the task at hand, giving you actual practical experience for navigating Web3. The purpose of MetaMask Learn is to teach people the basics of self-custody and wallet security in a safe environment. And while MetaMask Learn always takes the time to define Web3 specific vocabulary, it is still a jargon-free experience for the crypto-curious user. Friendly, not scary. MetaMask Learn is available in 10 languages with more to be added soon, and it's meant to cater to a global Web3 audience. So, are you tired of having to explain crypto concepts to your friends? Go to learn.metamask.io and add MetaMask Learn to your guides to get onboarded into the world of Web3. Immutable is at the forefront of Web3 gaming, on a mission to bring digital ownership to every player, offering the world's best games and game development platform. Immutable lets game builders and players focus on great gaming experiences. So build your next Web3 game on easy mode with Immutable's leading full stack Web3 gaming platform. Its built-in UX features like the Immutable Passport are designed for games to scale to the next billion players coming to Web3. With Immutable, players can sign up with an email, pay with a credit card, and experience a frictionless purchase purchase flow inside of games. So discover your next favorite game and explore a network of 150 games building on Immutable, including such titles as Gauze Unchained, Guilds of Guardians, Illuvium, Ember Sword, and Metalcore. So join Web3's largest ecosystem of games and players. Build, play, and connect at immutable.com. So Ryan, I'm not super tapped into the world of politics and lobbying and fighting on Capitol Hill, but I feel like everything that you said is more or less like a known science to the outside of the crypto industry, I think maybe inside of the crypto industry, we're like, eh, it doesn't matter. It's a global movement. We'll get there eventually. Don't worry about the milieu of Capitol Hill fights. But we've already passed that part in the conversation where we've established that now is the time in Washington, D.C. is the place. But this is like a known science, right? We're not inventing anything new here. This is what other industries do. I think perhaps what you're suggesting is like, oh, we're doing a great job in more narrow efforts to fight the fight for crypto. But I think you're just saying, hey, let's zoom out. Let's get bigger and let's be more strategic with how we advocate for our industry and copy the strategies that other industries have employed for decades. Is that a fair summary? One thing about Sam Bankman-Fried is his understanding of the political system and the political game was unparalleled within the crypto industry. Hmm. What he did last year was very savvy from a political standpoint. We basically Damn need it. to do something, <laughs> but here's the thing. The silver lining is we know that. 
But we need to be better as an industry. And you need to run a very similar playbook, but with a decentralized base of contributors and a set of honest actors that have been in the trenches for years building for the sole reason that we actually believe in this tech and its potential to be a force for good. So Ryan, uh, look, who could that be? Okay, who, so who SBF could that be? Totally Ryan got it right. Like he was playing. Well, like we got we got we got three of them. Well, on the call, okay. So. Well, I don't know. That's ambitious for me. But like, okay, SBF was playing the right game, and he was maybe one of the first people in crypto to actually start playing that game. And by the way, people who didn't understand this game, like zoom out and they look at, oh my God, how far he got so fast. Mm. Right? It's like amazing what you can do if you play the game and you mm -hmm. play it well. And you're saying that we need better, honest, good actors rather than sending our worst to DC, SBF, a, a literal fraudster. <laughs> we need to send the right people to DC. We need to have good leadership here. Also, we need to keep it decentralized and accountable as well. But the game that he played, we need to play a similar game. That's what you're saying. I think so. I mean, he had all of the wrongs to that campaign, but we can't do it the same way that he went about it, obviously, right? I mean, I think the crypto brand is pretty tarnished from a lot of folks that are not true believers of the tech within DC. You know, he gave money to so many people and he put so many people in a bad place politically, or he made them look silly, or, you know, he, the one rule I think we should learn as an industry is don't embarrass your friends in DC. And he just was a nuclear bomb that went off in DC based on the amount of time that he's spending there with members, with staff. He embarrassed everybody. In, well, but we think about it as like he embarrassed us, which is true, but he also embarrassed a lot of folks in DC. And I think mm -hmm. led folks that we were making progress with to clam up. And so part of the job that we need to do as an ecosystem, and, and again, going back to the messaging is we need to advance some of the true narratives of crypto, not the woke shibboleths or whatever he called them, you know, when he thought he was off the record, basically him just blowing smoke to key members in both parties when he was meeting with them. But we need to actually narrow in on like, what are the true bipartisan messages that we just need to focus on and like show the impact of and just browbeat the DC establishment into understanding over the course of the next 18 months. And I think the narrative development there is very often understated because we have a decentralized community. So, okay, who is going to elect like one spoken representative for this entire like decentralized community? You know, why would we play the DC game when we can just opt out and, and build in all these different pockets? Let Ripple fight their case. Let Coinbase fight their cases. Let whoever kind of, you know, kind of, you know, fight their individual battles and we'll just engage in trench warfare from all these different corners of the industry. The reality is that we have some overarching messages as a community that whether you're a stablecoin issuer, whether you're a Bitcoin maximalist, whether you're a diehard Ethereum fan, like these kind of core truths, I think, are things that we can rally around and that we can win a lot of swing voters in DC over, right? So the proliferation of stable coins being number one, the kind of individual economic empowerments of you know previously disenfranchised or you know underbanked or creative classes, like those are pretty powerful narratives because you're talking about positively impacting the livelihoods of you know different individuals in different up and coming parts of the economy. And you're talking about American competitiveness long term. And then the last is just the rule of law, right? So I think 
we lost some of the moral high ground when it comes to use cases and the case for crypto and like this is going to change the world last year just because that's what happens when you go from a bull to a bear cycle but one thing that we really have right now is the constitution and the rule of law on our side and some of the overreach that we've seen from the regulatory state is so egregious that we just need to be able to wrap those stories in a tight narrative and, and actually saturate DC with some of these stories and help, help people understand even what the issue is that we're fighting against. Because I think a lot of members and a lot of their staffs just don't understand what's going on with debanking, what's going on with the SEC's, you know, kind of double speak when it comes to regulation and uh, and the fact that it essentially amounts to a, a shadow ban in the industry. So if we can focus on kind of the three pro crypto, you know, kind of positive messages, and then the three combating kind of opposition narrative, you know, kind of counter messages. That's, I think, all we can do to hold the line for the next 18 months and then give the folks that are at the trade associations that are actually actively lobbying in D.C. and that are going to be running campaigns, give them the air cover to operate and you know, kind of help move the incumbents and some of the newcomers to Congress in the right direction. This marketing piece, I think, is going to be important, not just from like a single entity, but hopefully some of the research that we put out is going to help Folks like you is going to help folks when they're meeting with members. It's going to help folks when they're on mainstream media outlets triangulate on the things that they know have a 30 point net favorable rating when it comes to talking points, right? So maybe we don't want to say, hey, anyone in the world should be able to use crypto, regardless of whether they're on the sanctions list. Like that's not a smart narrative, right? Sure. I, I love some of the libertarians in the industry, not a smart narrative. But if you want to talk about the dollar's dominance and the benefits of a US dollar denominated stablecoin versus the you know Chinese digital yuan from a competitiveness standpoint or from a US CBDC from a surveillance standpoint you know that's a pretty good narrative to rally around and say yeah you know, there are pretty common sense solutions here we're this close you know tell your members that you would like to see stablecoin legislation tell your members you'd like to see more structure you know regulation so that we can feel safe and secure when we're using Coinbase or Kraken or Gemini or another U.S. regulated entity. If we get it right, this could be very powerful. This is the reason, uh, you know, D.C. listened to SBF and not someone like Eric Voorhees, even though we wish he would listen to an Eric Voorhees sometimes. You have to kind of massage the message here. And so I want to make sure that people hear the punchline because this is so important. So you and the Digital Freedom Alliance, the DFA, this is a new organization that you're helping to form, are raising between $100 million or above to $125 million, I believe. That's kind of the range. That feels like a lot of money, maybe, but I don't know how it compares to other organizations doing this. You're raising that in order to put this structure in place and do things that the coin centers and the blockchain associations aren't doing. They're kind of manning the wall. They're the night's watch, but there's all sorts of political activity that we need to have, that we need to coordinate around if we actually want to win during this very narrow window of opportunity. So what do you call this thing, Ryan? Is this like a pack? Is this like a super pack? And by the way, are we trying to influence lawmakers here? Are we are we doing kind of the pack game of like, you know, we're running commercials to yeah. voters and we're talking about like the virtues of crypto and we have kind of talking points around that. Like, so anyway, I want to make sure you kind of nail the point of what you're actually doing because this is beyond talk. This is not you just standing up here and getting on the Bankless podcast and saying, hey guys, we need to do more stuff. You're actually organizing it. You got the, you got the outlet. So what are you going to do with $100 million? I'm not going to do anything with $100 million. So the, the Digital Freedom Alliance is going to raise 
probably about five to 10 of that, right? And our ability to actually execute against the roadmap that we have on the messaging side, we can do a lot with 5 million or so, and then it scales up from there. And basically the variance is how much messaging and how many you know kind of paid campaigns are we able to run and how many different kind of areas are we able to move swing voters in DC and kind of move sentiment and kind of mainstream media outlets. It's a, a marketing machine, right? Dollars in equals you know, some outcome on the other side of that from a brand and a, a favorable standpoint. The 100 to 125 million, I think is what it costs to run like this multifaceted campaign. So DFA, I think is on one side of the wall, one of the missing ingredients, maybe the missing ingredient from an education advocacy standpoint. Coin Center and DFA are kind of like yin and yang. I'd say Coin Center is very focused on the constitutional issues, whereas we want to focus on the messaging issues that are actually going to change public sentiment and DC sentiments. All the other trade associations are responsible for lobbying and thinking about what are legislative solutions that are going to work, that are going to get some bipartisan support and then potentially get enacted into law. They're also the ones that are engaging directly with regulators through rulemaking and, and helping them understand how crypto can fit into existing you know, regulatory structures in the meantime, before we have clear legislative guidance. The other 50% of that, so the other 50 plus, you know, 75 million, that's where the PAC and the super PAC funding come in. And that's the electoral finance side of this equation. What I have said is I want to spend time on this only because I've already spent time on this the last two years. Basically, ever since the infrastructure bill, as you know, I've been more outspoken. I've spent more time with these policy groups. And so I know the executives and their policy teams pretty well. What I'm trying to wake other executives and investors up to in the industry is the need to make this investment and to basically like two to three X the investment that we currently have, which is the first comment that we made about 30 to 40 million. And where we need to be, which is closer to 100, 125 million, a good chunk of that is going to come on the political giving side, actually supporting financially the pro-crypto members of Congress that have been very good on the issues. They've dug deep. We want them to be holding pen on new legislation because they just understand it technically. And we have faith that they're going to get the balance right. Engaging in primaries is going to be the work of some of the super PACs and some of the other electoral politics uh, focused organizations that we have. And the goal there is to basically look at if it's a swing district, who is going to be the better candidate in the general election? If it's a 40 point Democratic district, who's going to be the best Democrat that we can get through that primary? If it's a 40 point Republican district, same thing. Who's the best Republican we can get through that primary on these issues? And that's just a ground game that I think is not something that can be developed in-house at any of the crypto companies. But we do have some good political operatives that are running those PAC and super PAC operations that can help us both recruit and then elect great like pro-crypto voices as generation change in Congress takes hold. Just to give you an example, last cycle, we elected out of the open primaries that, that one of the industry's primary super PACs was focused on, we went basically 17 for 18 in terms of pro-crypto candidates. You know, there's 430 some members of Congress so to actually move the needle, you're going to need to do that every two years for the next decade. And then you ultimately win over time just by having a more educated digital native base of members. That is going to handle, I think, a good chunk of our long-term challenges. But in the meantime, we have to make sure that we get some pretty important districts and some pretty important Senate seats swinging in the right direction, because if we have blockers at important committee chairs or important you know kind of senior members of either the senate or congress that are going to slow down any legislative 
proposals that come across their desk just because they are so far in the one category that they're, you know, they're not salvageable for our intents. Then we need to you know, figure out if there are candidates that are better suited for us as an industry, you know, how do we help support them? And by and large, I think the strategy to date has been support incumbents, work with incumbents and their staffs, educate incumbents and their staffs, educate the regulators and you know, tell the right story. And the areas that we've fallen flat are in actually financially supporting them and then arming them with data and research that can kind of help them make the case as they're going out and they're stumping for this is one of the key prongs of their campaigns. Last thing I'll say on this point is the reason that this $100 million number is so important, again, it's not to put you know kind of money in, in our organization. I think we're probably five to 10 of that on the 50% education advocacy side, along with all the other existing groups that we have. But I think a problem that many executives and investors in the industry make is they don't want to play in electoral politics for whatever reason, right? They either think that it's not a good use of time, good use of money. They don't want to feel like they're getting, you know, it just, it feels untoward to a good chunk of the community, especially the, the libertarian strain that got into crypto, particularly to opt out of politics. And I understand that. But if we don't get over that, then what you have is a situation where all of those groups, whether it's Digital Freedom Alliance, it's Coin Center, it's the Blockchain Association, it's CCI, they're going into a meeting and they're having a really good session with members and their staffs. And those members and staff come out all rah-rah. And then they look at their watch and say, well, I have to go meet with the Bankers Association because I have a fundraising lunch. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. you know, you're basically throwing an alley-oop, but there's Guys, no I mean, through. this is what we've done in crypto. I mean, th this is what they say in, yep. in DC. It's true. If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And uh, crypto kind of sat back and we basically let somebody who was more ambitious represent our industry in DC. And that person's name was SBF. And look what he did. And so if we don't fill that vacuum with something, like it's not... It, unfortunately, I wish this was the case. It's not an option to just step out of the game and not play. It's a Moloch trap. You have to play the you game. Have to You're play. forced to play this game. So if we're in a position where we're forced to play the game, let's do it well. Right. We can maintain our ethics. We can maintain our values. But we got to play this game well. And also, if you do it right, you don't have to do it in the future now. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's much more expensive to do the cleanup work as we're seeing yes, kind of post-SBF. Right. Post One thing just to make this like super tangible, because I know 100 million is a big number. It sounds like it's kind of out of left field, but there is some science behind it. But if we want to just do like back a napkin, what is the return on that investment, if you will, right? I think about this as an insurance policy, right? Because if you're not at the table, you're on the menu and regulatory risk is probably the greatest risk that we have as an industry right now in the US, right? It's going to be hard to envision another kind of boom cycle in the US where crypto is thriving here under the current construct that we have and the current situation that we're in with the SEC and its jurisdictional issues, the FDIC and kind of banking regulators. It's hard to see a catalyst there. So I go back to the very first thing that I said, which is this is important because I think a pro crypto US is a 2x in market cap, right? That's the quick and dirty, right? Like I think everything thrives, the infrastructure, the use cases, the consumer adoption, and then yes, the price of some of these assets. But if you think that there's a 10% chance that that $100 million will move the needle for a pro crypto US versus a more hostile US after 2024, that's the only 1,000x there is in the market, right? Mm -hmm. It's the only 1,000x there is in the market. 10% expected value of a trillion dollars, $100 billion. 
100 billion is a thousand times more than 100 million, right? It's it's that you're simple saying it's good for our bags. It's that you're saying it's good for our bags. If we are interested in financial upside, we would yes. fight this fight. If we are primarily interested in number go up, this is a high value opportunity. Here is the issue that I think we're confronting this year. I think it's good for everybody this year. And I think last year it was good for Sam. Yeah. That was what so many of us were kind of fighting behind the scenes in these smoke-filled rooms or whatever other bullshit you know people levied at me. <laughs> people for, don't for, smoke for, in those for, rooms for, anymore. Yeah, yeah, for trying to you know coordinate some of these conversations. What we were trying to do is we were trying to slow down Sam, who is running kind of unilaterally and trying to just Going you know, rogue. advocate for his own efforts. And we were trying to make sure that there was a good group of folks that were actually engaged with the policymakers that were writing some of these bills. And that were at the table and, and felt like you know all of these diverse interests in the industry were well represented. That ultimately, you know, maybe it was moving the right direction, maybe not, but it, it fell apart because FTX fell apart. And so now we're kind of back to square one. Where can we get the honest brokers in the industry, the people that have been here for years, the people that didn't just pump and dump on their followers, the folks that actually believe that triple entry accounting to be as boring as that is, right? Like, but triple entry accounting is such a profound technical innovation in an era of declining institutional trust that this is worth protecting at all costs, right? And I think that has to be at least a quarter, if not half of the focus for any serious executive or investor in the industry right now, because the cost of getting it wrong long-term is so damaging and just stunts our potential to such an extraordinary degree that we just can't afford to risk it. So I think... I've been enthused by my conversations with other founders, with other investors, but it's a tough market, right? It's tough to make this pitch in a declining market. And it's tough to feel like we're trying to like squeeze blood from a stone. But I think the stakes are high. The time is now. And if we can get through the other side of this bear market and we can have these hard conversations now and move the needle and, and be the like the very best that we are from a narrative and from an ethics perspective then I think we can get through the other side of this and, and you'll see a much stronger vibrant ecosystem emerge on the other side, both in the US and then internationally as other markets draft off of us. Really quick, Ryan, just to throw some quick questions at you. What are the, just like the near term next steps? Like what's happening in the next week, month, two months to get the DFA up and running, the Digital Freedom Alliance? And then also throw a question at the, the end for this. How much harder is this now that SBF was playing this playbook a year or two ahead of us? And then blew that strategy up. And now we have to like do that same strategy. But now there's like the shadow as of SBF in Capitol Hill. Like how much harder is this now as a result of that? So I'll throw those two questions at you. Well, I mean, I think step one is, you know, the same strategy, but the complete opposite, right? So, you know, we're not trying to do this, you know, behind the scenes, you know, I'm putting bullseye on my forehead and, you know, coming talking to you guys and being pretty vocal about what we're working on. So it's hidden in plain sight. But I think the reason that we should be a little bit more transparent is that's what the industry is based on. And that's ultimately the only way that we're going to get to the other side of this FTX drama. Remember, that court case is coming up. So we're going to have a whole other cycle where like that is going to be top of mind for folks. And if we don't have a very strong counter narrative that includes just a massive slug of entrepreneurs that are, you know, ready to be like, you know, articulate really powerful surrogates for the industry that can tell some of these positive stories that can tell you know policymakers the way that they are approaching the industry is in good faith and in the right way and in keeping with some of our existing laws and norms then you know we're going to be able to i think get some of the results that that we want but from a dfa standpoint you know we've got some world class you know 
colleagues that I'm working with on, on this campaign, the messaging strategy, the go-to-market, the research, both polling, FOIA requests, freedom of information requests, you know, opposition research, and then the storytelling kind of masters that are going to help you know package this in, in a digest that's going to be accessible for people that might not otherwise have time given all their competing priorities in DC to fully digest you know what's going on with layer twos and you know what's the new hot NFT project like none of that really matters we have to abstract all that away and kind of just you know, focus on some of these core issues that's great I mean no question we need to do this work so to summarize all of this Ryan your message today is crypto needs to get going on this right now the time is really now we're spending maybe 30 million a year collectively on the crypto policy machine and we need to three to four x that investment across the industry so we need to get to between 100 and 125 million you are starting this digital freedom alliance which is going to be a 501c4 advocacy group and what that's going to do is it's going to occupy this niche of helping to fight the FUD, helping to tell a story that propagates across both policymakers and mainstream. And maybe that costs something like $5 million of that 100 to $125 million. But that will allow us to scale and amplify the rest of the investment that we put on this space. And maybe that takes the form in the future of other PACs, us getting more active in campaigns, but we really need sort of a narrative machine in order to propagate the right messages and honestly to coordinate on them. If we don't do this, by the way, the next SBF comes in and like pumps their own bags instead of pumping the values that we, that we want so expressed across crypto. So that is what you're here to tell us. And that is the work that you're going to do in this space, particularly setting up the Digital Freedom Alliance, and then also making the call for us to triple our investment in this crypto policy space and being a leader in this space as well. Not the only leader, but a group of leaders that can push this forward. Did I get that right? I think you nailed it. I'd say, you know, I didn't abscond with customer funds, so I don't have as much personal capital to deploy at this as, <laughs> as other folks in, in, in previous cycles. So it has to be decentralized, right? And I think if we can pass the hat around, what I would say is an action item from this episode is you go to joindfa.org if you want to learn more about what we're working on and then you want to find ways to get involved. The first bit of fundraising that I'm doing is for that first 5 million. We'll ultimately open it up for public contributions in the next couple of months. But if you want to subscribe for updates, we've got a Substack they can subscribe to uh, on the joindfa.org website. And if you're an executive in the industry and you or your company would like to contribute to this $100 million campaign and you're just flying blind and you don't even know where to start, what I've volunteered is that if you're ready to spend serious time and money, I will pick up the phone and try to help orient you towards which groups need this capital the most, right? So I think we need to continue funding CCI, Blockchain Association, Coin Center. I can make the case for like why the Digital Freedom Alliance is a really important prong of that side of the equation. And then I think we also need to make sure that those that have done really well in the last couple of cycles are funding the PAC and super PAC efforts so that we actually make long-term and medium-term change in Congress that is going to set us up for long-term success and not just this perpetual firefighting that we've been doing the last year or so. That's great, Ryan. We'll end it there and we'll leave a link in the show notes. It's been awesome to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you for uh, doing this too. Yeah. (laughs) Apparently we need it. Thank you guys. Cheers, Ryan. I just want to say one last thing as we close, guys. We'll include a link in the show notes to joindfa.org. And let me just say, Ryan has been in this space for 10 years, Mm -hmm. all right? And there's a certain Lindy effect 
that we talk about often about protocols. I think Lindy effect also applies to individuals as well. Mm -hmm. People who've been through multiple cycles without stealing anyone's funds, without screwing people over, like by being honest actors. And I think we are, um, we have swung a little bit too far on the pendulum of not trusting anybody right now in 2023, the crypto industry, okay? And that's understandable. Look what we went through in 2022. A whole bunch of scam artists screwing the space over. No wonder we have trust issues collectively. But let me say, let's not err too far on the other side and come to the conclusion that there are no leaders and we can't trust anyone in this space. There have been people that have developed a reputation, been through multiple cycles, and are trying to do the right thing. And I think Ryan Selkis is one of those people. I'm really excited to support Join DFA and for the work that we're doing. It's sorely needed. If we don't fill the gap here, somebody else will. And I'd like to see Ryan and some of the other leaders. Brian Armstrong is one of them. You know, I know the folks at Kraken, lots of good folks that are still here pushing this work forward. So don't get disinvolved in politics, okay? We gotta involve ourselves if we're gonna take this fight to DC and you know, propagate the values that we talk so much about. Mm-hmm. That was my sermon, <laughs> rather than disclaimers, you got that. But let me end with disclaimers. Of course, none of this has been financial advice. It's not really political advice. We're just figuring this stuff out as we go, guys. But ETH is risky, so is DeFi. You could definitely lose what you put in. We are headed west, though. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. 